in advertising, like it's more dramatic to show a bald person mm-hmm. grabs attention quickly. But I think too, there needs to be more images of the spectrum of alopecia. And I know mm-hmm. that there has been steps towards that in advertising and things like that, but I want to see more of it. Welcome to Alopecia Life. This is episode eight. Today's guest is Caitlin Riley Claybeck. She lives with her husband and young son in Michigan. She is a licensed clinical social worker at Michigan State University doing counseling. She was diagnosed with alopecia at the age of 12, and alopecia consumed most of her thoughts, energy, and emotions until she attended her first conference at the age of 17 and met others just like her. That conference gave her her life back, and alopecia informed her career path and brought her some of her very best friends. And I'm so privileged to be one of those and to share her with all of you. This is Alopecia Life with your host, Deanne Graham. You'll hear interviews with specialists in their field and parents who are helping their child move through life while living with alopecia areata, along with conversations with alopecia rock stars who are making a difference. Alopecia Life is here to provide you with support, accurate information, inspiring stories, and life hacks to help you navigate the world of hair loss. Whether you've just been diagnosed or have had it for ages, Alopecia Life has been created to share all the information you may want or need to do alopecia your way. Thank you so much for being here today with us. Just really excited to have you here to share your experience as a professional and with someone who is with alopecia. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So um, when I met you ages ago, back in, (laughs) when was it, 2011, somewhere around then? 2009. 2009. Okay. You were in school and you were studying in your undergrad and grad work. You did qualitative research about alopecia and how it affects us, for mm-hmm. those of us, and, and how really mental health is such a huge part of of alopecia. We're talking about the, the medical pieces of it, but there's also the mental piece of it. And uh, a little bit of what you did was discuss our experience with our clinicians, with our doctors, and and wanted some feedback and concerns to that to kind of bridge that gap between patient and doctors. So mm-hmm. would you like to share a little bit about that with us? Sure. I can share uh, first about my undergraduate research, which when trying to decide on what I wanted to write about, I couldn't think of anything that I was more passionate about than alopecia. And I studied the connection between the age of onset and a person's view of their hair's connection to their identity, particularly for women and also gender norms. And ultimately, in my research, found that the age of onset pretty directly correlates with a person's view of those connections. Kind of the the younger a person develops it in their childhood and also the older they are in their life, it has less of an impact than kind of in that middle spot mm-hmm. and explored different themes that came out of that, like going bald in public and dating and grief and loss and, and those types of things. And then in my graduate research, I studied basically exploring the needs of the alopecia community and how they're being addressed in the medical field. And I interviewed both people that had alopecia as well as dermatologists. And I think one thing that emerged from that is just the huge amount of misinformation that can be out there 
or lack of information that providers are sometimes not giving to their patients. And someone can leave the office just feeling totally lost and kind of in a very emotionally raw place, feeling really a lack of support. So coordinating efforts to be more consistent in what we provide to individuals that are diagnosed with alopecia so that they can have the best support and resources that they need to take the next steps, whether they decide to do treatment or not. Right. Did you find that the misinformation was really more about resources or was it about cures and things like that? Or It was more about the course of the illness. Some people were told it'll grow back in a year or, you know, Mm. just different things that, as we know, as someone who has alopecia, the hardest thing about it can be the unpredictability of it. Mm. Um, But just not necessarily being consistent in regards to this is what it is, this is what the course is, even if for each person it's different, but really explaining that. And some of that might also be speak to the emotional place of the person because you just want to make sense of it. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we can't. And that that can be very frustrating. Right. And oftentimes when we go into a dermatologist's office, we've already seen one doctor and this Mm -hmm. is a referral. And Mm -hmm. so we're at our our wits end. At the same time, when we go in, we want answers, but we also Mm -hmm. are probably in a state. Well, I know we are. We're in a, a place of we want to know a cure. We want to know the longevity of it. You know, like mm-hmm. you said, are we mm-hmm. getting that consistent information? And depending on the physician you go to and their experience with it is going to affect those answers too. And mm-hmm. and I think that, that there definitely could be a general knowledge that is shared with everyone mm-hmm. and think that I know for a lot of clients that I work with and forums that I'm part of, they talk about, well, you know, my dermatologist said, if I have 80% loss, that the chances of it coming back are zero to none, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's kind of a depressing <laughs> thought, but it's not yeah. true. I mean, we have different yeah. things that affect our, our growth and loss hormones, you know, whatever, whatever those things may be. And I know even for you and I, I had regrowth at 14 doing nothing in my lifestyle change. And I know you have also had regrowth too. Mm-hmm. So, Sure. I, I did want to say one other thing about the mm-hmm. medical field is that they, uh, I don't want to generalize, but mm-hmm. they're in the profession of fixing mm-hmm. and it's got to be really hard for them as a provider, a person with the knowledge of the human body and medicine and all of that, that there isn't always a clear answer. And so I wonder if some of that misinformation might also be them trying to just be able to provide something. And I think that that mental health piece often gets overlooked because the focus is on the hair itself. Mm -hmm. And I think also, like, I would love to see some sort of resource packet that Mm -hmm. is consistent across the board, whether it's electronic or on paper of, you know, here are the resources as far as support. Here are the resources as far as supplies, like, you know, medication assistance, if you need that or support for buying scarves or wigs if you need to or choose to do that. And also the mental health piece, because like you said, it can be depressing because it really rocks your world. But to go back to your other question, I did have, I developed alopecia at 12 
and was losing a lot of hair and actually shaved the remainder that I had left my freshman year of high school. So I was like 14 mm-hmm. in order to get a wig because I was at that point. And then I was bald. I always had a little patch kind of on top that I affectionately referred to as Mexico because <laughs> it was it was shaped in that, that way. And then I think it was my sophomore year of college I started to get regrowth and that was without doing anything or taking anything. I did try treatments the first year that I had alopecia on my scalp and the side effects were just not worth it to me in the long run that I stopped that. And I appreciate that my parents Mm -hmm. let me make that decision for myself. I think that's a dynamic that it can get complicated when there's a, a parent and a child involved and, you know, wanting to have the child's voice involved in their treatment plan when technically they're not an adult and able to make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really appreciate that my parents, I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And they said, okay, that, you know, that's fine. I've got a partial head of hair right now and some loss on my different parts of my body. And it just kind of, I, I just let it do its own thing. And what are your thoughts about that? I know you led an identity workshop at the National Alopecia Areata Foundation this summer, and you talked about hair loss and then regrowth and then that place of really being in limbo when your hair comes back, where you felt mm-hmm. a real strong sense of community that you found mm-hmm. um, with complete loss and then mm-hmm. having that having that regrowth. I think one thing that occurs throughout our journey with alopecia uh, is grief and loss. Like when you're first diagnosed you're grieving over, okay, this person that's looking at me in the mirror doesn't look like the way I've looked up to this point. And I think too, like with the position I'm in right now, I can sort of blend in or get away with, so to speak, looking quote unquote, and I say that in very large quotes, normal. <laughs> so that grief of, um, hey, I identify with, with you and I'm a part of your community, but I don't look like it sometimes. And that makes me sad. And just letting myself feel that, but know that in my heart, I'm still a part of the community. And the amount of hair that I have on my head doesn't affect how much you love me or think of me as someone that shares your journey or your experience. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's going to be really helpful for people who who are in that kind of limbo place with, with their hair, that roller coaster of loss and mm-hmm. regrowth that is just so common. In advertising, like it's more dramatic to show a bald person mm-hmm. grabs attention quickly. But I think, too, there needs to be more images of the spectrum of alopecia. And I know mm-hmm. that there has been steps towards that in advertising and things like that. But I want to see more of it um, yeah. because there are so many people that are either in a phase of give and take, like they have hair for so long and then they, they lose it or they're patchy or, you know, whatever it is. And everyone wants to see someone that looks like them when they click on a website or, mm-hmm. you know, are seeking support services. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Thank you for sharing that. If we could go back to talking about really the mental health piece of this that mm-hmm. that really is by the wayside, let's just say it's it's mm-hmm. kind of secondary to, like you say, when you go to the doctor and they, they want to fix that. And mm-hmm. if, if you had something when you were first diagnosed and something that you talked about really having that information that could be effective in saying, okay, I know this is a lot of information during our appointment and here you go. These are the resources. And mm-hmm. what else would you like to have on there? I mean, as far as local support, you always want mm-hmm. that and mm-hmm. then you kind of want something more national. 
well. What else would you like to see on that? Well, just one thought that comes to mind. Um, I know that some doctor's offices, every appointment automatically do a depression screening. And I think that dermatologists could do that too. Just having that on their radar to be able to monitor their patients for that because different dermatological conditions will have an emotional impact. I think having information on normalizing that it's okay to be frustrated or sad or pissed off or wherever you're at, that it's all kind of part of the part of the journey. I think that research on the topic of alopecia and mental health is increasing, but it has been limited in the past. And I think that also reflects mental health in general. If someone breaks their arm, it's acceptable to say, okay, go to a doctor, you know, maybe get an x-ray, maybe get a cast on it, you know, maybe do physical therapy if you need that. But if someone's heart is broken or they're sad, going to seek help to talk to someone, it, it's a totally different ballgame. And then when you think about the cultural component is help seeking behavior, how is that viewed in our culture and in my family and all of that? So it gets really complicated. Mm-hmm. But I guess to answer your question is to have information available that normalizes the emotional journey of alopecia and resources related to like depression and anxiety. Yeah, I love the idea that there's going to be access to things like that when they leave the office because it's just mm-hmm. so often that they can't get the help they need in that regard. So, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you so much for talking about that, Caitlin. And can you tell us a little bit about how you chose your career path and if that relates to alopecia at all? Sure, it most definitely does. I had always been interested in psychology. I took a general psychology class in high school. And then I took a few psychology courses in college, but I really wasn't sure where I wanted to go as far as a career after college. And in undergrad, when I interviewed women with alopecia about their journeys and hair and identity and beauty and all of that, in the feedback that they were giving me, women were saying the questions that you asked made me think about my alopecia differently. Mm -hmm. And that sparked a route in my mind of, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to help people think about things differently that are struggling with something. Mm. And I thought, well, crap, I didn't major in psychology. I don't know. I don't know what to do. (laughs) And I met with a college advisor who told me about social work. And I started researching that and ended up applying. And I received my master's in social work. And I focused in mental health and interpersonal practice. And I'm now working as a therapist doing counseling. And I have, you know, a wide range of things that interest me as far as working with clients, whether it's depression or anxiety or body image issues or um, identity development. But alopecia is still very present in that. I have a in clinical interest in living with chronic illness, uh, living with an invisible illness and the navigating the stigma that can come with that. And also identity development because of my research in alopecia, but also right now I work with college students and they're really at a a key point in their life when they're exploring, you know, who am I? Where am I going with my life? Who am I going to become? I love helping them explore those questions. Yeah, I love that. When you were interviewing people for your study, what age range was that? At the time of the interview, they were all adults. Mm -hmm. The age range of onset, though, varied. I think the youngest age of onset was two Mm-hmm. And I think the oldest, if my memory serves me right, was the person was in their 50s. Okay. 
And I think if memory serves me right, I interviewed about 23 and their demographics varied as far as ethnicity. They were all adults at the time of their participation because interviewing children can get a little more complicated with the process of parental consent and all of that. Right. Plus introducing ideas that they may not even be thinking about, right? Sure. And that's kind of a big thing too. So, Mm -hmm. and did you find any real difference with the ethnicity piece of it? You know, that is something that I think needs more exploration. One African-American participant did speak to the fact that she had some instances of feeling a lack of validation because Mm -hmm. she said, in my community, it's normal or acceptable for women to wear wigs or weaves. Mm -hmm. And so me being bald, people are telling me, oh, just wear a wig like it's no big deal. But Mm -hmm. for her, it dismissed the grief and lack of decision in that process. She didn't want to have to wear a wig because of alopecia. And that was kind of where her frustration was at. Sure. Uh, uh, Some women discussed, and I don't have an answer to this, but wondering just the social acceptance of a bald Caucasian woman versus a bald African-American woman. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that, but I definitely think the cultural connection to hair is huge. And that's something that, you know, a whole nother research paper could be written on multiple, totally. I'm sure. Yeah. And that's something maybe that we can explore later in another podcast. I'd like to, to find someone who could to that for sure. Mm. Anything else you would like to share about your alopecia experience that you'd like others to hear? Anything really, your diagnosis, your your process, mm. anything? I think the key word is process. Getting it at 12 was hard because being 12 is already hard. I had very supportive parents I don't have any siblings, so it was just my parents, and I'm very supportive, and they let me navigate it on my own time, but they also kind of tried to push me where they thought I needed to go, which was right. They had asked me if I wanted to go to an alopecia conference when I was first diagnosed, and I wasn't ready. I said, heck no. Uh, If I go, that means I have it, and I am not wanting to. (laughs) I'm not Mm -hmm. wanting to admit that yet, and... Eventually, I got to a place, I I met a woman with breast cancer who was a mom of a girl I played soccer with in high school, and I'd never seen a bald woman out in public before. And even though the reason is is different, it really empowered me. And I went to my first conference, and it was so liberating because before that, alopecia had dictated so much of my energy and my time, like... I wouldn't let anyone see me without my wig on apart from my parents or my very, very close friends and no pictures. If someone came over unexpected, I would like hide in the closet or one time I pretended I was asleep and put a pillow over my head because I didn't have time to get in the closet. Um, So I uh, I totally relate to that. Yeah, I went to a sleepover and I slept in my wig and it was horrible. So to realized I didn't have to do any of that. I almost felt like I was apologizing for my alopecia. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I have this thing. I'm sorry. But got to a point where I'm like, okay, I have this thing, but I don't have to let it run my life. It's okay to, I stopped wearing wigs. And after that, and I was a better athlete and just more Mm -hmm. free, more myself. And I was actually, my high school was very supportive. I went to a small school and I gave a speech about courage in front of the welcoming assembly that my senior year, and then I was elected homecoming queen, 
which was amazing, uh, very mm-hmm. surreal, even just mm-hmm. to think about it now. The teacher that was kind of organizing it went and bought a special crown for my head because normally they buy the ones that have like the spikes for the hair. Right, but right. she got me a special one that would go on my head, which was mm-hmm. very sweet. And then the local newspaper found out about me and they did an article on the front page and people in the community that had alopecia were reaching out to me. So mm-hmm. it was a really surreal time in my life when I, I had underestimated the degree to which people would accept me because I was struggling to accept mm-hmm. myself. Then I feel like over time, as I've come into adulthood, that's become more uh, in line. And like, I have a partial head of hair now, but I wear my hair up and, you know, it, it is what it is. And people mm-hmm. might assume it's a hairstyle. They might not, but right. um, all about convenience and comfort. Mm-hmm. So I think allowing people to take their journey at the pace that they need to and meeting people that have it, like, I can't emphasize that enough. Just in, you and I have a deep unspoken connection that goes beyond words mm-hmm. because we've been through it. I wouldn't trade anything for that. Yeah. Yeah. You're a new mom. You have mm-hmm. a one-year-old. Yes. And would you mind sharing kind of a little bit about your parents? You said they're very supportive and especially with regards to your alopecia. As a parent now, do you want to maybe share your thoughts about what your understanding of what your parents went through when you were diagnosed? Oh, I can't even. It makes me want to cry. Spencer, uh, we took him to the doctor and he got some of his vaccines and he was crying and I was crying and it was, you know, you just want to fix it and make it better. So I can't even imagine. I remember there was one time and it was kind of random. Like my mom and I were watching TV in the basement. I was still in high school and she just looked at me and it was before I had kind of come out, so to speak. And I was still like, you know, pretty upset about it. And she looked at me and just started crying and said, I wish I could go through it for you. I'm sorry. And I was like, oh my God, like, where is this coming from? And you know, as a teenager, I was like, this is awkward. Like, you know, I, <laughs> I appreciate what you're saying. But now as a mom, I can imagine that pain. And, mm-hmm. you know, it. it's, um, I think parents need their own support, really. Mm-hmm. And I know, mm-hmm. like the Alopecia Conference, they have support groups for parents, because it's a different journey, the person that has it versus the person, the family member. Right. Alopecia is really all encompassing, right? It Your mm-hmm. support system either shrinks or gets larger. Mm-hmm. And as your parents are effective, your family members, your friends, mm-hmm. your siblings, mm-hmm. your, your partner, whatever it may be. So that's really also a very important piece to kind of acknowledge and yeah. say, you know, this is bigger than, than just a diagnosis. So, And there's this author, Drew Leader, wrote a book called The Absent Body. And it's about his theory is that we don't operate in our day-to-day life being aware of our body until something is injured or something breaks. Kind of mm-hmm. like you don't realize how much you use your thumb until you can't use it. And then it's really awkward. And I think the same thing applies to our identity in that we don't realize how much our hair or the way that we look is a part of our understanding of ourselves as who we are. And grieving over that and exploring that is a part of the journey too. Absolutely. We'll put that reference in our show notes too. 
hopefully the phone ringing in the background (laughs) isn't really going to show but if it does it'll be just fun it's just Um, it's life (laughs) it's life it's life happening okay so I think something that I am gonna do with all the people I interview is ask about their favorite dessert you and I are big dessert people so Mm -hmm. tell me what is your favorite dessert Caitlin this is really hard I love food I love dessert it could be my every meal of the day (sighs) and then I think about like really good food we eat when we're together because we're serious about our food. Just going back to basics, I love a really good gooey chocolate brownie with vanilla ice cream on top. With anything in the brownie? I No, I no. Do not, no nuts, no, don't taint it. Just pure brownie with vanilla ice cream. I could eat that all day. And preferably the brownie is a little warm before you put the ice cream on top. Of course. (laughs) Who would do it any other way? <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I know you've just provided us access to even more information, the things that we can ask for from our physicians and from our support systems. And I appreciate you. I think this is one of the ways to normalize alopecia and, you know, the journey that everyone goes on. Thank you for joining us today on episode eight of Alopecia Life. I put the link for the book, The Absent Body by Dean Leader that Caitlin mentioned, and I'll also post it on Facebook in my show notes. Thank you so much for being here today. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening. Join our Alopecia Life Facebook group and find out more information at headonlifecoaching.com. The information on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment and is meant for general information purposes only. If you're enjoying these episodes and finding the tips helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to and download podcasts.